0: from santa barbara california timeless voyager radio with bruce stephen holmes self-development radio for the open mind interviews with leading-edge authors and speakers in the fields of environmental issues alternative health care new psychology psychic phenomena UFOs and extraterrestrial encounters. And now, Bruce Stephen Holmes for Timeless Voyager Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Bruce Stephen Holmes for Timeless Voyager Radio. My guest today is Richard C. Hoagland. He is a speaker, author. We're going to learn more about his credits. He has a very interesting book, which is called The Monuments of Mars, A City on the Edge of Forever, Uh, also a videotape. The U.N. briefings, again, he had presented a lot of evidence about the planet Mars. We're going to learn a lot about this. Why are we talking about it? Well, folks, I think we all have realized at this point that something is going uh, wrong or amiss with the with NASA and JPL uh, having to do with the Mars mission. And I'm going to introduce to you Richard C. Hoagland. We'll learn more about this right now. Uh, welcome to the show. Hi there, Bruce. Let's just say it you believe there was a possible hijacking of the Mars Observer.
1: Yeah, I want to underscore the the word possible. We don't have firm evidence, although we do have some, what you would term, deep-throat sources within NASA who are calling third parties whom we know, and very much in the uh, tradition of Woodward and Bernstein and and Watergate, they are saying that this hypothesis is correct, that these are engineers who claim they have first-hand information that NASA has converted for the time being, uh, the Mars River mission into a stealth mission. And when I say NASA, I don't mean all of NASA. I mean a, a, a section, what I termed at our press conference at the National Press Club on August 24th a rogue group, uh, although one might quibble with the term rogue if we're dealing with a high-level policy, which has quietly been formulated, not known to the rest of the agency. Uh, but be that as it may, we are attempting now vigorously to pursue and to verify technically that this, in fact, is what has occurred. If if the Mars Observer is not dead, you know, it's not dead, Jim, <laughs> to quote a line from Star Trek, uh, and it's out there transmitting data to a secret NASA downlink site, then technologically we can track it, we can find it, we can hear it. The question is, is anybody willing to listen? Are they willing to put the equipment into operation which could intercept the signal simultaneously and reveal, if in fact this is occurring, what would be the biggest scam in history?
0: All right, so now I guess the uh, thing that we should do is backtrack a little bit then to present some information to listeners who may not be aware of your findings. So why don't we just start out with with the the, uh, idea that you... Uh, have written a book and, of course, have presented to the U.N. and many other uh, NASA engineers and, of course, the rest of the world, uh, information about the planet Mars and uh, some of the uh, uh, different artifacts that you believe are there. Why don't we tell the listeners about that?
1: Well, you're you're absolutely right, Bruce. Without the context, this sounds like an absolutely flaky, off-the-wall idea, and there are some NASA people who are accusing us of saying all kinds of things that we're not saying. We are not indicting the entire space agency. NASA has something like 28,000 people who work for it, ranging from scientists and engineers to secretaries. And I know a number of those people, and they're extremely dedicated, hardworking. They work long hours of overtime. They do not charge the government uh, in many cases. They are they are dedicated to the idea, the dream, that, then, that NASA represents a fundamental new... Um, uh, window on the future for this culture and other cultures around the world. Well, I'm to the agency, which has somehow wrested control and direction from the precepts of the NASA charter, and now through a very careful history of documented uh, diversions in this last diversion may, in fact, have attempted to pull an extraordinary cover-up of a fundamental mechanism of simply testing this hypothesis. So what is the hypothesis? It is simply this. I and my team for the last 10 years and some other independent investigators before, working on the 70 year old NASA Viking images taken during the uh, unmanned Viking mission to Mars in the summer of 1976, now believe that we have assembled compelling evidence for the existence of extraterrestrial artifacts on the surface of Mars. Vast, extremely ancient structures built by persons unknown, which resemble, and I underline the word resemble, uh, Egyptian-style pyramids and even the Egyptian Sphinx itself. There appear to be Sphinxes now on two worlds, one on Earth, on the Giza Plateau in Egypt, well-known to, I'm sure, everyone listening to this this show, and the other, perhaps not so well-known, located at a location on Mars called Cydonia in the northern Martian deserts, which is a mile-long, 1,500-foot-high effigy to something that not only looks remarkably sphinx-like, but, in fact, looks like us. And the question, of course, before the House and before NASA and before the scientific community, For the last 10 years, as the real science has been done and published in peer-reviewed literature and invited in the front door at NASA five times, that's where one of the series of briefing tapes comes from, not just the UN, but from the NASA briefing series that we were invited to present over the last several years. The question must be, are these artifacts? If they are, how can we test it? And why was Mars Observer mysteriously lost just days before it was to be placed in orbit to begin that test.
0: Now, you kind of, uh, uh, I believe, are, are certainly implying that, uh, that... Well, you're not implying it. You're saying it. There is a group, uh, a rogue group, that, that have an agenda. Now, um, we know that, that NASA itself had a particular agenda, which was, uh, I believe, not to, to, uh, to even uh, photograph these areas, uh, but what would the agenda be of this smaller group that you believe may have hijacked the uh, vehicle in the first place?
1: Well, all right, this gets somewhat complicated. And again, we must go on the record and on the evidence. Um, when the photographs were initially taken by Viking and reveal this remarkable possibility, the initial actions of the Viking team themselves was anything but scientific or curious. They simply ignored the data. The data consists of dual sets of images taken of these structures, these possible artifacts, at two different lighting angles, which allows, with the appropriate technology, a full three-dimensional recreation of the objects in terms of their form, their placement, and their geometric layout in relation to each other. Now, NASA, as part of its charter, as part of the Resendetra for the Viking mission, 17 years ago, which was, quote, the search for life on Mars, NASA should have been the agency to spearhead this kind of intensive scientific evaluation and investigation of this evidence, and it didn't. We now know from, you know, extensive investigation of NASA's files, FOIA requests, that's the Freedom of Information Act, uh, and a year-long independent study of NASA's actions by a California scientist, an epistemologist, an ethicist, an historian of science, a philosopher at Sonoma State University, Professor Stanley V. McDaniel, former chairman of the department who a year ago this month launched his own independent investigation of this entire charade. His evidence indicates that NASA from the beginning simply did no science. Nothing. Nada. Yet. And the question, of course, you've got to ask is, why? If NASA's going to the American people... To the American Congress and asking for a billion dollars to search for life on Mars, you would think if they trip over the evidence that it would behoove them to follow up and do some science on the question of life. Instead, the record shows NASA has done nothing except prevaricate, stall, give out misleading information, uh, lie about actual evidentiary materials, the existence of photographs that ostensibly disprove that these objects are, are there, uh, those photographs do not exist. They have never been produced. No one can find them. Instead, on the record, there are sets of photographs which, when properly analyzed and and uh, published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, confirm that whatever their origin, the monuments of Mars are indeed face-like and pyramidal. And then, of course, we get to the question of origins. So, from the beginning, there is a strange pattern, Bruce, of misleading uh, actions and statements, which in any court in the land would raise red flags and raise the possibility that somebody here is not telling us the truth. And on the part of some within NASA, there has been an effort to manipulate this data, to manipulate the rest of NASA and the scientific community away from the data, and to manipulate the, the verification. That is on the record. That is fact now. There is no dispute that these events occurred, and you got to ask yourself, are they simply so dumb that they keep making the wrong mis- uh, decision, making mistakes, or is there an agenda? And it is Dr. McDaniel's conclusion, not just ours, that in fact NASA has had an agenda, or I should be more precise and say that some within NASA in positions of authority and control on this issue.
0: Now, Richard, I was very surprised in our last show that we did a while back that, uh, that that you know, I had asked you who actually found these pictures, and I thought that our listeners might be interested to know how this actually happened, how the pictures actually went by and were discovered quite accidentally.
1: Well, they were discovered by NASA, which makes it all the more amazing that they did nothing to follow up. The Viking mission consisted of four spacecraft, two orbiters and two landers. The orbiters uh, took about 100,000 pictures of the total Martian surface during the four or five years of the extended mission, which lasted into the early 1980s from 1976. The landers were landed at two widely separated points, took soil samples, conducted atmospheric analyses, and radioed home a rather confusing set of readings that basically have left us in the dark regarding the presence or non-presence of microbial life in the Martian soil. But on the orbiter pictures, in this northern Martian desert, roughly 41 degrees north latitude, which is just about the latitude of where I'm talking to you from here on Earth. 41 north passes just north of New York City uh, here in the United States. Uh, The the Viking orbiters photographed this stunning collection of very interesting things, the most interesting of which was this mile-long, 1,500-foot-high humanoid face that everyone has now seen in one form or another, either splashed across, you know, my book or the, you know, applied optics, or perhaps if if you go through the supermarkets a lot, you know, on the cover of the National Enquirer. The point is that NASA, when it saw this provocative data, instead of being galvanized into doing some kind of science, at least publicly, appears to have done nothing, and instead began a, a very interesting campaign of disinformation and propaganda to dissuade real scientists from ever attacking and trying to solve the puzzle posed by what I came later to call the monuments of Mars. And it is that trail of evidence that indicates to us that we have not been told the full truth. In fact, it was Toby Owen, a Viking mission uh, scientist on the imaging team, who on a Sunday morning in 1976 in July, found and became the first human to uh, voice Uh, you know, amazement at the presence of the so-called face on Mars. So, in fact, if you want to track back who discovered these objects, it was NASA. But who has done the science? Who has tried to figure it out? Those have been all kinds of people outside of NASA. In fact, doing it under fire while NASA and the scientific establishment at times have been uh, metaphorically shooting at them.
0: You know, there's a, there's a very interesting uh, part in in your appendix one where you uh, refer to some information from uh, Lambert Dolphin, and I just wanted to uh, mention to the listeners that, that even his conclusions were that the objects had to have been built, that there was no way that these could be anything having to do with crater impact. What is your uh, reaction?
1: Well, of course. Lambert was on our first independent Mars investigation team that we formed at SRI International, which is the big think tank uh, north of you there in, uh, in northern California, just outside San Francisco, I basically tend to agree. But it's important for the audience to note that Dolphin made his assessment before we found the stunning and very compelling numerical and geometric data that now unequivocally to any objective observers and i can list a few of the people who have come on board you know from positions of skepticism or neutrality when they've seen the data and seen the full weight of the evidence now they are convinced that there is an overwhelming need to go back and get more data because there's almost no other explanation than that these are designed by intelligent beings so we've moved far beyond dolphin's you know data set when he made that statement And that's why NASA's actions and non-actions and pronouncements are all the more puzzling, because at, at first glance, you would assume that they would be most eager to go back and verify what we have found simply because it would mean more funding. As some people have said, look, you know, if you were right, guys, this would be a gold card for NASA. And instead, their actions, again documented meticulously by Dr. McDaniel's independent study, Which, you know, you you would think that NASA would be doing the normal thing, and in fact, documented by McDaniel, they are not. Which, of course, again, raises the specter that we do not have the complete uh, evidence in the political realm. There must be, there have to be reasons why good men and women are making dumb, stupid, unscientific decisions based on this extraordinary evidence and the extraordinary implications. And in fact, we don't need to leave everybody in the dark we think we have found critical new evidence to indicate exactly what has been politically driving the train for the last 17 years within NASA, and we intend to tell people about it.
0: All right, before we hit that, and of course I'm sure it's going to be very interesting, uh, I would like to uh, ask you a question, and that is this. It's, it's evident, then, that with the Freedom of Information Act, uh, NASA would not want to show photographs, uh, they did uh, go through a, a very, very, I think, um, interesting ploy by uh, having all of the photographs, well, the photographs that we were supposed to see would have been uh, as uh, digitized. Uh, but it seems to me that the uh, most uh, and the easiest way for them to get out of any of this would be to say that the observer didn't work in the first place. Doesn't that uh, seem right?
1: Now, you're talking about the new Mars observer images, right? Absolutely. Okay. Well, you see... This now requires us to reconstruct some history, because in the wake of Viking, 17 years ago, the majority of scientists, both in and outside of NASA, felt in one sense that Viking had been a flop. It had not done what it was advertised to do, which was find life. And for congresspersons, whose main raison d'etre for funding science is that the people kind of go along. They're willing to continue to ante up tax money. Uh, Viking was particularly embarrassing because it had a very high profile, you know, search for life, and then ostensibly it didn't find it. So in the wake of Viking in 1976, and I was present at some of these meetings that were held literally before the spacecraft was, you know, even, uh, even, even dead in orbit around Mars or on the surface. I remember some of the scientists, who eventually served on critical teams and panels within NASA, were discussing with those of us at JPL as Viking was sending back data what they would have to do in the wake of Viking to continue to go back to Mars. And the main thing they felt they had to do was to come up with a cheaper, much more, um, should I say, accessible technology that did not require several hundred people gathered in a room the size of a football field to fly the mission, which has been the case with Viking and Voyager and Mariner and the other unmanned spacecraft that we NASA has sent all over the solar system in the last 30 years. So the concept behind a Mars-observer-type spacecraft had its genesis even before the signals coming in from Viking had died away. And the plan was to construct a brand-new class of cheap, 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 very low-cost spacecraft that would fly to various other worlds for under $100 million. (laughs) I know there's a lot of folks in the audience that are saying, what, $100 million is considered cheap? And in fact, in government, it is in in certain days. Viking was a billion-dollar mission. Mars Observer was supposed to cost less than a tenth of what Viking was cost. And the way the agency planned to do it was to basically use mass production techniques. If you had to buy a car from a hand-tooled craftsman, you know, and it was one of a kind every time you went out to buy a car, you couldn't afford to buy a car. And there was a time in our history when cars were made like that, all right? Now we make them with, with, you know, production lines and mass production techniques and stamping of parts and computer, you know, assistance and design and automatic laser welding and a whole bunch of other technological innovations, which uh, Henry Ford, you know, introduced to us in in part. And cars are, you know, more or less affordable, all right, because they're made in large numbers and they're made the same way. Well, what NASA wanted to do with the Mars Observer program was to begin a new era in spaceflight, which was to basically create a set of mass-produced assembly-line spacecraft, hang various instruments on them, depending upon which planet you were going to, and send them out to do their job. Mars Observer was the first of this new vision. And unfortunately, as things in government tend to do, the price tag over the years kept creeping up and creeping up and creeping up, so that finally this brand-new spacecraft that was supposed to save us so much money wound up costing $980 million, which, for those of you guys with calculators, you know, is just a shade under $20 bucks shy of a billion dollars. So what did we really save? What we, what we got for that money, however, was a very different kind of spacecraft that could literally be flown by five guys in a room. Instead of having hundreds of people strung all around the world to fly this thing, to downlink data, the mission plan was to have such distributed technology, such democratizable instrumentation, such microprocessor, you know, home-type computer control of all the instruments and the spacecraft, that literally five guys on a weekend in a room could fly it once it got to Mars. What we strongly suspect now based on this incredible technological sophistication, is that the wrong five guys are flying it. And the rest of NASA is literally, for the time being, in the dark because it was hijacked. When NASA looked, appeared as if it was going to lose the war on keeping the new images secret, we think that this small group decided to act and to simply take the spacecraft offline and to convert it into a stealth mission for the time being
0: Richard, just for a little bit of credibility, uh, you were the science—I uh, shall I say—advisor for Walter Cronkite. Is that right?
1: And a matter of fact, we are now in discussion with Walter on a whole new two-hour documentary, uh, which may begin production in the next few weeks on this entire matter. And you were the first show that I have been able to announce this because, literally, as we were beginning the program, I got a phone call. And that was the content of the phone call, and I can now make this public. Walter is interested in joining forces and in laying out the evidence that we have quietly assembled as part of this team's efforts over the last decade.
0: Now, you alluded to uh, a conspiracy, I guess, that was to keep the information from us. What is the train, you said you call the train, what is the train that has been running for 17 years?
1: Well, it's even longer. It turns out to be 33 years. Um, NASA, to to do this properly, I have to take you back, you know, this is Timeless Voyager Radio, right, so we can go back in time. I have to take you back to July of 1958 when uh, NASA was born, when the Congress, in conjunction with then-President Dwight D. Eisenhower, crafted into law, through the National Aeronautics and Space Act of 1958, this remarkable, in fact, I would say unique, government agency. Because NASA's charter expressly forbid secrecy on data. It expressly encouraged the widest appropriate dissemination and publication of all of NASA's scientific results. It was acknowledged that there would be some times when NASA would be working with the military, with the Pentagon, on on military programs, and therefore means and methods and technologies would have to be kept secret in light of national security interests. But in terms of what it found out, in terms of asking questions of the universe, NASA was supposed to be an extraordinary experiment in openness, in democratization, in public accountability. The data that NASA acquires, you and I own. And very few people seem to realize that 33 years after the fact. Well, we have now found a document, a very detailed study, that NASA, shortly after it was born, as, as, as this uh, uh, act of the, of, of the Congress in 1958, commissioned of the Brookings Institution. For those who may not be familiar with the term Brookings, although if you watch McNeil Air, you'll see people on there every night, practically from Brookings. It is one of the world's most prestigious and oldest think tanks.
0: My guest today, Richard C. Hoagland. We are talking about probably, as I said before, one of the most incredible conspiracies that we've had in a long time, certainly in uh, the space community. For those of you interested in UFOs, you're used to these kind of conspiracies. For those of you who are used to the idea that America has been a very open society recently, uh, this is, uh, I guess, an unfortunate uh, uh, lesson to be learned here. NASA, as uh, Richard Hoagland has told us, was supposed to be an experiment in openness and yet a uh, document was found. Uh, you were talking about Brookings. Why don't we just reca- recap that for a few moments for our listeners who may have just joined us.
1: Well, NASA was formed by Act of Congress in 1958, and it was designed to be extraordinarily open with data accessible to the press, to, to members of Congress, to the ordinary American you know, taxpayer. Uh, basically on on, on on request, you know, with a small fee for, you know, duplication charges, things like that. There is now set up outside of Washington something called the National Space Science Data Center File, where all of NASA's images and magnetic data tapes and results garnered from 30-plus years of exploring space and the solar system are gathered and archived, and I myself have availed uh, myself of of lots of data through the NSSDC files over the years, particularly uh, this year. All of the Viking data is stored in the files. All of the lunar data from the lunar missions, Surveyor, Lunar Orbiter, the Ranger missions, the Apollo images. I mean, there are tons or millions of photographs and, and other data bits available freely to the American people and basically to anyone in the world simply by knowing where to look. And this is all. Be- this isn't ha- did not happen by accident. This happened because this was built into the law. This was part of the charter, which, of course, makes it all the more unbelievable when you raise the possibility that someone has subverted the charter and someone has been deliberately lying to you on a very important mission going back almost now two decades. Because people look at this vast archive of available materials and they say, you've got to be crazy. There's no way that anybody could keep anything secret in NASA, given this penchant and overwhelming uh, urgency for openness. And that's true on, on the surface. But when you look beneath the surface, what you find is a very strange set of events that took place just as NASA was being formed. In the opening months, this group in NASA, this, uh, long range, uh, this committee on long-range studies, it was called, turned to the Brookings Institution to basically define what NASA was to become. Remember, at this point, NASA was five guys in the room, and they basically didn't have a clue as to how to put together a civilian space agency or what the impact of potential studies that the agency might carry out, might have on society, so they turned to Brookings, and for over a year... The Brookings people managed a set of colloquia and discussions and focus groups encompassing between two and three hundred experts in all kinds of, of areas of, of life, ranging from law to architecture to space science to engineering to materials to economy, uh, all across the board. People of the caliber of Margaret Mead, uh, who was a very well known anthropologist of, of, of the time, uh, people like the head of the Harvard Business School. The head of MIT, uh, the Legal Affairs Council for the United Nations, on and on and on. These were very important people in their fields, and they were brought together specifically to lay out an agenda for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration for decades into the future. We have now found a copy of this document. Federal archives um, all over the country, so you can easily find a copy of your own. It is it is called we, we are calling it the Brookings Report. But actually, its formal name is Proposed Studies on the Impact of uh, the Uses of Outer Space for Human Affairs. And uh, you can find it uh, either that way or you can call us at the Mars mission, and we will, you know, point you in the right direction. It basically was a blueprint for what NASA was to become and for the possible impact of NASA activities on the entire world. And one section in particular is very interesting and important, and it deals with the potential impact, of the discovery of extraterrestrial. And what is amazing is that in this document on page 215, it forecasts that someday NASA probes might discover artifacts left by other civilizations on planets all around the solar system. And it lists three possible places to begin to look, the moon, Mars, and Venus. Well, of course, the science of the times has now moved on and Venus is excluded for a variety of reasons. But the moon and Mars are still very viable candidates. And uh, what's amazing to me is that this was calmly and rationally discussed by a NASA document, by a group of NASA consultants, without the vitriol and the name-calling and the finger-pointing that we and our team have been subjected to over the last 10 to 17 years by claiming that possibly the Viking data is, in fact, this kind of artifactual evidence. What's really interesting then, Bruce, is that the document goes on to discuss the possible impact on the world of this kind of discovery. And that's where things get really, well, I guess the expression is hairy, because they discuss the potential for social destruction, for social devastation, and the potential need for keeping this data secret, for withholding this extraterrestrial evidence of intelligence out there from the American people and from the entire world. Now, what's extraordinary is that in this document, which was penned before the ink on the charter was dry, we have the foundations of an extraordinary hypocrisy. We have the formation of a big lie. Because while NASA's charter claims absolutely, without exception, total openness on all scientific discoveries, this document raises the specter and discusses the possibility that to prevent the collapse of civilization, this specific information on extraterrestrial artifacts and or signals and or contact should be considered to be withheld. And we now think this represents a smoking gun. And it is on the basis of this document and the other studies that the Brookings document called for that this rogue group, this inside deep policy group is making decisions to prevent the American people and everyone else from seeing the full verification of the monuments of Mars on global television. And that's what's happened to Mars Observer. They could not afford to see live TV from Mars because of what Brookings portends.
0: So, you know, their position then, of course, is probably the worst of all, because here they are with the um, ability probably to get the most incredible funding they ever wanted to, and at the same time, uh, they're probably prevented, I guess, by uh, uh, those in uh, power politically from telling anyone what they're finding out. Is that uh, Does that sound pretty good to you?
1: Well, it, I mean, that's a reasonable reading of the evidence. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's even worse, all right, because what we're dealing with here if we're dealing with a reality and again i'm proposing this as a possible scenario we do not know this for a fact you know but but again the evidence is is uh indicative of something i mean when you have a group of high level and very esteemed consultants basically tell you on this one subject alone i mean it didn't act this way when it came to weather control or communication satellites or any of the other things that the space age has given us but when it came to the subject of extraterrestrial intelligence they talk about the possible destruction of civilization if this knowledge is allowed you know, willy-nilly out into the landscape. Let me read you something else from the same time period. I unfortunately do not know which magazine this appeared in, but this appeared relatively contemporaneous. That means it was, it was probably in time or life along about 59 or 60. And it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a quote from a magazine article quoting two very prominent astronomers I'm sorry, one prominent astronomer and one prominent biologist of the period, one of whom we believe uh, was involved with the Brookings uh, study group and with the recommendations to NASA. The, the, The article goes as follows, quote, British astronomer Bernard Lovell argued that we must regard all other life in the universe as, quote, a real and potential danger. George Wald, Dr. George Wald, the Harvard biologist and Nobel laureate, says he can conceive of, quote, no nightmare as terrifying as establishing communication with a so-called superior technology in outer space, close quote. Such contact, Wald claims, would destroy, quote, the whole human enterprise, the arts, literature, science, the dignity, the worth, the meaning of man, close quote. Now, when you have attitudes like that, you know, when when people are so terrified, when there's such a McCarthy-esque, paranoic fear, the truth and knowledge will undermine civilization and destroy the dignity, the worth, the meaning of man, is it not beyond the realm of possibility, if you believe that, that you would simply send a command to turn off a spacecraft that might precipitate exactly those events.
0: Now, now the thing that I'm interested then in, and of course I think our listeners might be too, uh, with this knowledge, alright, and with the fact that probably NASA knew that Cydonia was going to reveal all this information, then how is it possible that they wouldn't have started out with the hijacking in the first place?
1: <laughs> Excellent question, Bruce, and let me tell you this has to do with the arrogance of power. From our reconstruction, and most importantly from Dr. McDaniel's independent reconstruction, What I firmly believe now is that NASA thought it could have its cake and eat it, too. It thought it could conduct a secret mission in the open. And the reason is because nobody has ever questioned NASA. Look, this is a space agency that killed seven human beings a few years ago and should have had a top-to-bottom ransacking. There should have been, you know, the old expression, heads will roll. Well, the only heads that rolled were the heads of the seven astronauts who died in the Challenger explosion when it was proven by the, um, uh, you know, uh, commission, the presidential commission, that there were massive and egregious violations of safety, of protocol, of communication, of engineering, you know, forethought, and there was a political expediency to simply launch the damn thing on some kind of an arbitrary schedule without paying proper heed to the engineer like the, like the hero from Thiokol, who desperately, at the, at the risk of his job, tried to get them to postpone the launch that morning. Well, if you will glibly risk the lives of seven astronauts, seven human beings, when you claim that the highest priority in the agency is the sanctity of human life and the astronaut's safety, if you'll do that, if you'll compromise that icon, is it not conceivable that there are many other things that you claim are of importance and value, like openness and honesty, that you might also sacrifice? If you think that the downside is the the future well-being of all of civilization, the dignity, the worth, the meaning of man. In fact, what I think happened is that from 1976, and again, this is a scenario, I do not have all the facts yet, but from 76, these photographs basically languished in a drawer. It wasn't until the early 80s when our teams began to make waves and discuss with the president's science advisor, uh, George Keyworth and others, and people on Capitol Hill, that NASA even realized in large measure that it had this data within its own grasp. It was at that point that I think there was the beginnings of a plan to go back for very bureaucratic reasons, for very turf protective reasons. You know, NASA is an agency, right? If NASA is the last guy on the block to have data on ETs or ET technology or ET artifacts, then NASA has to catch up. But how does NASA catch up when it is this incredibly open agency where everything it does is subjected to the glare of publicity? Answer, NASA artfully lies. NASA sends a mission to Mars with an exquisite camera, and for the first time in its history, NASA embargoes all the pictures. So instead of having live television as we had from every previous mission, NASA was intending to fly Mars Observer and to dole out a few selected pictures to reporters and to networks and to wire services that it would choose, and everybody else, I guess it presumed, would simply not give a damn. What was really important, I think, in in deciding the fate of this mission was when we, the Mars mission, outside the independent team which I've been leading, and the political constituency in terms of Mars mission members and members of audiences such as yours, began to write letters by the tens of thousands and call their congressmen and and talk to the networks and make such an unholy fuss that NASA saw the handwriting on the wall. It saw that it would be unable to carry out its original, extremely arrogant game plan, which is to conduct a secret mission in the open. Because up until then, nobody had seriously questioned NASA's word, its authenticity, its credibility, or its consonance with its own charter. And what is really telling Bruce is that the morning of August 21, two days before the Mars orbit insertion, I was scheduled for a debate on national television on ABC's Good Morning America with Dr. Bevan French, who was the Mars Observer Program Scientist from NASA headquarters. And the two questions that I and my host kept asking Dr. French, which he did not have answers for, were A, why aren't you going to target the Sidonia objects for new pictures from the spacecraft? And B, why aren't you going to release all the pictures live as you've done on every previous mission? And he simply sat there repeating the same non-answers over and over again, looking as guilty as my dog guilty. And when that program was over, at 11 o'clock sharp New York time, that is when NASA made the official announcement that it had lost the Mars Observer spacecraft. When we began to receive invitations to brief NASA, we had the forethought to either bring our own camera crew or have NASA tape uh, the proceedings. And in some cases, uh, we were able to get our own tape. In other cases, NASA provided us a tape. Again, most of the system is honest, Bruce. Most of the system thinks it's doing what the charter says it should be doing. It's only a few people somewhere near the top that we think have bent the rules drastically and are preventing the rest of NASA from and the rest of the American people from seeing what they deserve to see. So as part of this briefing series, where we were invited in the front door over and over again to show them our developing data set, what our scientists and engineers have found in terms of the layout of the Cydonia complex, the morphology of the structures, the geometry and mathematics of the structures, the potential physics implications of the structures, we uh, put together this home video briefing series called Hoagland's Mars, Volume 1, Volume 2 and Volume 2 Extended. Let's talk
0: for a moment about the white paper uh, by uh, McDaniels. Uh, we've never talked about that uh, on the air. Let's just do it very briefly.
1: Well, Dr. McDaniel began this study a year ago as part of his epistemology classes at Sonoma State University. He felt, rightly, and I agree with him, that the problem of Sidonia, the problem of science, of all the weirdness that's gone on around scientists refusing to grapple with this question, make a really neat problem for an epistemology class. And for those who may have forgotten, epistemology is simply the science of science. It's the question, how do we know what we know? How do you know when you've tripped over an extraterrestrial civilization? You know, do you look for the yellow arches? (laughs) Or do you look for something more subtle and more sophisticated and more lasting and more general that intelligent societies or intelligent beings, given the necessity of reworking the material world, Will have to leave you in the form of artifacts or structures or, or things like that. So, as he began to go through the data and the various books and the videos and all that, apart from our work and apart from other independent investigators' work, he began to realize there was a real problem with the ethics of NASA. Because instead of being able to show NASA's work and to present NASA's evidence why this was not real, why these were not structures, all he had were a bunch of empty propaganda statements. So he began to dig and to dig, and he began to think about writing a paper. It was going to be called Mars Brief One initially, and it turned into a year of unpaid labor, of phone calls and document searches and and extensive discussions and calling NASA and reading the record and getting letters from congressmen and and, and other people in the grassroots, and putting together an extraordinary trail of evidence for a very high-level, frankly, deception on the part of NASA on this critical, fundamental, seminal issue, and, as he says, some pretty good science on the part of the independent investigators. That document now is about to be published. We're making it available. He is making it available to the general public, almost 200 pages. It's three or 400 Uh, footnotes and references detailing conversations, documents, congressional correspondence, the Brookings document, all of the things that he has found that indicate in some total that your space agency has not been living up to the charter on the most important discovery that NASA could ever make in its entire history, On 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 essentially the subject for which NASA was formed, the search for extraterrestrial intelligent life somewhere in space accessible to our technology, funded by the American taxpayer. And it's that document that I strongly recommend you get and read, because most important, it is independent. I have never even met Dr. McDaniel, although we've had hundreds and hundreds of hours of conversations on the phone, uh, as he has with many of the other investigators and with NASA people. But most critical, on Friday morning, the morning before the spacecraft was lost on Saturday night, before my Sunday morning appearance with Dr. French. Dr. McDaniel had hand-delivered to Dr. French in Washington by courier a copy of his seminal report. 36 hours later, after French and who, el- who knows who else in NASA read Dr. McDaniel's scathing indictment of the lack of science and ethics on the part of the space agency on the critical Sidonia question, 36 hours after receiving the document, NASA loses Mars Observer.
0: All right, What is uh, what do you think? Uh, do you think this is the demise of NASA?
1: I hope not. What we need is a restructuring. We need to return NASA to the hands of the people who are most of the 28,000 people who work for it, who are honest, who believe in the Charter, and more importantly, Bruce, who believe in the Constitution of the United States of America. What this handful of people are doing, if they are doing it, is abrogating not just the Charter, but the, but the uh, you know, trust, of the, the, the framers, the founders of the Constitution, that people deserve to have a voice in major decisions or major developments that will radically affect their future history here on Earth. If we have found artifacts, if we have found evidence of an intelligent species right next door, accessible to our technology, accessible to manned and peopled missions going back in the future years, then everybody, not just in this country but in the world deserves to know to go through the evidence and to be part of the decision making process for how to go back and acquire more evidence. But what that has happened what has happened to that process is it's been truncated, it has been cut off, it has been summarily, you know, put in a closet with the door locked, potentially by a handful of people who like George Wald are terrified that this knowledge will quote destroy the dignity, the worth and the meaning of man.
0: Can we catch this uh, rogue NASA group, do you think?
1: Well, we have now put out a uh, bulletin from the Mars mission, a five-page document crafted by our engineers, which lists how, if you are a radio astronomer, and you're listening to my voice, and you would like to participate in an extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily important historical save, you can tune in on Mars on the X-band frequencies at which it is transmitting, And if we pick up a signal, if we verify that it is still alive and well and transmitting data, obviously that would constitute the proof. If, in fact, we do that and we do not hear the spacecraft, if we don't hear anything, then it will tell us that another set of scenarios must be examined. And then if if we don't hear anything, period, it will imply strongly that either the failure mode that NASA has put out is, is accurate, or that maybe there is another group transcending NASA, another government agency that simply saw the ball game getting away from NASA and decided to independently shut down the Mars Observer spacecraft. And again, I do not say this lightly, we have some evidence that this, in fact, may have taken place. It would require another hour to go through all the evidence, but there is evidence which we are pursuing, and uh, we'll just have to see as we, as we track through the possibilities which of these scenarios turns out to be correct.
0: All right, Richard Hoagland, thank you very much for being on the show today.
1: My pleasure, Bruce.
0: And uh, thank you for tuning in Timeless Voyager Radio. This is Bruce Stephen Holmes, and I hope that your own personal voyage through life towards the development of your highest potential is a joyous and successful one.